Where Do We Go From Here was the last full book by Dr. Martin Luther King. In reading him this year, one thing that I found is that his arguments are often dialectical. Start a train of thought with opposites, freedom, service. Then find the truth of each embedded in the other. Your service is perfect freedom. Hegel, the philosopher, was the master of that way of thinking. And where do we go from here? Dr. King's eye is on the plight of northern black folk trapped in urban ghettos. Having fought so hard against legal racial segregation in the South, now he is hearing calls by blacks that blacks should separate themselves from white society to preserve their racial solidarity and protect their culture. The separatists view America as incurably hostile to blacks. Rather than American, they stand on their African identity. African or American, those are the opposites that King frames. And then he writes this. The Negro is the child of two cultures, Africa and America. The problem is that in the search for wholeness, all too many Negroes seek to embrace only one side of their natures. Some, seeking to reject their heritage, are ashamed of their color, ashamed of black art and music, and determine what is beautiful and good by the standards of white society. They end up frustrated and without cultural roots. Others seek to reject everything American and to identify totally with Africa, even to the point of wearing African clothes. But this approach also leads to frustration because the American Negro is not an African. The old Hegelian synthesis still offers the best answer to many of life's dilemmas. The American Negro is neither totally African nor totally Western. He is Afro-American, a true hybrid, a combination of two cultures, end quote. Faithful life is also dialectical. As Christians, we are children of two worlds. The scripture writers pair opposites to name them, time and eternity, earth and heaven, flesh and spirit, life and Adam, life and Christ. I'm not talking about church and state or secular and sacred. I'm talking about this life punctuated with a beginning and an end and another life with different punctuation. Karl Barth called the first the old world of Adam, the world of history, time, people, and things. Bart's words remind me of the last words of my favorite novel, All the King's Men, when Jack and Anne, finally married, leave the Gulf Coast. We shall come back, no doubt, to walk down the road and watch young people on the tennis courts by the clump of mimosas and walk down the beach by the bay where the diving floats lift gently in the sun and on out to the pine grove where the needles thick on the ground will deaden the footfall so that we shall move among trees as soundlessly as smoke. But that will be a long time from now. And soon we shall go out of the house 
and go into the convulsion of the world, out of history into history, and the awful responsibility of time. When Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, it recalls a going out like that, out from my Father's house and into the convulsion of the world, out of eternity into history and the awful responsibility of time. The old world of Adam is the world we know. How do we know it? By sight, sound, smell, taste, and feel. There it is. And because we read it in the newspaper and watch it on the news and it comes at us in email tsunamis and nonstop tweets, it pleases, scares, provokes, and amazes me. And I'm not tired of it yet. The new world of Christ is now embedded in it. I am the living bread, he says. Whoever eats of it will live forever. His mortal body feeds us with eternal life. Sunday communion is the meeting ground. Opposites visibly and audibly and tangibly united to remind us how much more there is to life than meets the eye, the ear, the smell, the taste, the touch. The new world is no other than the old world which has been overcome in Christ, Mark says. Like an electric surge, this charges our old world with new meanings. St. Paul called it the weight of glory. About that, C.S. Lewis wrote this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, and by that he means us. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree, he says, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people, end quote. And now the question, is it true? Bart said that every church in the world should have that question carved in stone above its door. Because if it is true, it changes absolutely everything. Can we believe in God? We can. Having quoted Robert Penn Warren, C.S. Lewis, and Martin Luther King, 
Now I'm going to quote myself from the conclusion of my study of the Christian faith and evolution. In that field, the challenge to faith's believability is front and center. And so at the end, I face Bart's question. So, is it true? So this was me writing not as a preacher, but as a scholar. Sometimes when a Christian is asked, is it true? We hear the answer, well, it ought to be. And so it should. We ought to live secure under the protective arm of a benevolent and omnipotent creator who loves us and enjoys us and makes us free, who can and will deliver us from evil. It ought to be true that in the justice of God we find mercy and in his mercy justice. In other words, it ought to be that our world is overcome in Christ. The notion that this is so is both beautiful and good. These considerations bear on the question of its truth. According to an Anglican tradition going back at least to Richard Hooker, the pure reasonableness of our arguments and inferences is not the only applicable criterion. For Hooker, the goodness and beauty in our ideas of God have a proper part in our believing. Or rather, judgments regarding the good and beautiful create a perspective within which judgments regarding the true are to be made, with probability still our guide. John Henry Newman would think along similar lines. Insofar as faith and its intellectual aspect consists in probabilities, and since probabilities have no definite ascertained value, faith for Newman must also live in the desire for that which it confesses. Of course, that doesn't mean that the goodness or beauty of a metaphysical proposal establishes its truth. But in our situation, there is manifestly more than one reasonable way of accounting for and interpreting our world. And that fact leaves us with a choice, a decision, about which is the best ultimate explanation. The universe is open to various interpretations, religious and not. The fact that it is open in this way is, of course, a relevant consideration, a piece of data in its own right. What kind of God would create a world where both faith and unbelief are plausible, and with what purposes in view? A God who loves the world and who intends to win the world not by force, but by love. It is not difficult to name the ways that this condition, the room left for doubt, might serve valuable purposes, because it would certainly seem to be a necessary condition for our freedom. The gospel of Jesus Christ could not have happened in a universe where the purposes of God were manifest to an extent that Peter could not have been tempted to denial nor Judas to betrayal. There being room for doubt is a condition of the possibility that God would win the world by love. 
this situation, we can make sense of Karl Barth's otherwise odd contention that in lieu of arguments, God persuades us by being beautiful. God has provided that, Barth said, he should be attractive to the natural man and worthy of his love. And he has done this simply by giving them joy and giving them joy by being beautiful. The beauty of God is no abstraction. It is as concrete as a grateful woman moved to watch Jesus' feet with her tears, drying them with her hair. In the towns where Jesus went, it was God's beauty that drew the crowds. The goodness and beauty of God and Christ are the poetry and the music in believing. Science and history figure in as nuts and bolts because they also point in God's direction by the logic of abduction. This form of logic always goes from A to B to C, starting with a surprising fact and ending with a suspected explanation. Abduction never offers proof. It points to likely possibilities. So we are given the surprising fact, A, that we exist. And in a world of mathematical order and bountiful value, but also a world of inescapable pain, a world that seemingly unfolds according to a blend of fixed principles and historical contingencies. If, however, B, the Christian faith in God as known in Christ were true, then A would follow. Hence, we conclude, C, that there is reason to suspect that Christian faith is true. This is the gist of an abductive inference to the Christian doctrine of creation. In this study, we have seen that evolutionary science has changed some things about the Christian faith, and it has certainly posed a set of interesting new questions and challenges to it. Nevertheless, it has not changed the fact that if the churchgoer confronted by the question, is it true, will have grounds to answer at a minimum. There's reason to suspect it is. One could argue that on the basis of the material we have considered in our study that the case is actually much stronger than that. To do so would miss the essential point, however, which is that the case is already more than strong enough to bring us face to face with the ancient invitation, come, follow me. This is the form in which we, as creatures who can know and will that we encounter the divine appeal to our responsibility and love. And consistent with what we know of God's intent, we should expect no more. We know the inference could never be strong enough to compel assent, for that would mean the end of freedom. My argument may have shaded into preaching, but my point is also academic. If it is true, as Anglicans believe, that God created the world and that God guides it to a purpose. And if that purpose is realized in the fulfillment of a covenant of fellowship between us and God, 
then theology is an inquiry into God and into God's relation to the world will only be able to deliver a degree of certainty that accords with such a purpose. And at the limit of its inquiry, it will discover an invitation to a covenant, a fellowship with God and the life of a disciple. End quote. So instead of proof, we see a likely possibility and it beckons us because it is beautiful and good. That was me, the scholar, and now I'll preach. Here is food. Let's eat. Come, follow me, he says. Out of eternity into history, round trip. Let's go.